welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. And welcome to episode 23 of the Brain Tools Podcast. We're back with an episode all about the neuroscience and psychology of influence. A few episodes ago, episode 21, we went through buying and consumption. And today is all about looking at as individuals, how can you influence more people to a greater extent? And we've changed, we've changed things up a bit, Sam and I. Today, we're going to go through eight practical tips, literally eight brain tools that you can implement to be more influential and more persuasive. We're excited to get stuck into this, but I'm more excited to say hello to Sam. Sam, how are you? Hey, I'm uh, very well and very excited to get stuck into this one as well, being that we're both in uh, marketing and sales roles respectively, but more broadly for, for everyone tuning in today, everyone is in sales. Whether, whether we acknowledge it or not, everyone is in sales. You know, every day we go about our days trying to convince other people to do things from our partners to watch a specific movies, our coworkers to try a new idea, our friends to go to this new restaurant we want to go to. And so most people are influencing people, you know, whether or not they acknowledge it day in, day out, but we do it upside down and inside out. And we work from, you know, our head and the way we think into others. And we run into all these brain walls in the format of skulls, tissue, and, and different brains, which causes a lot of issues when we're trying to convince other people to do what we want them to do or influence other people. So everyone is in sales. It's actually such a good point that we don't realize that, right? Whether you are, well, no matter what profession you are in, whether you're a doctor, you're a teacher, you're constantly trying to move somebody from position mm -hmm. A to position B, whether you like it or not. And I think uh, there's a book, I think that both of us have come across, To Sell as Human by Dan Pink. Danny and Pink. he's got a quote in there, which is, to sell well is to convince someone else to part with resources, not to deprive that person, but to leave them better off in the end. And I think that's the real key thing about influence. Um, we've got to be mindful of influencing people for worst outcomes. Again, that's cheating. We don't want to do that. But actually getting some mutual value, creating a non-zero-sum game, a win-win situation is really, really important. And as you said, you're constantly trying to move people in terms of their beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors. And so today, what's really, really exciting is we're going to delve into the psychology and neuroscience of that today, but really practical tips that will make you more influential if you leverage that. Um, so eight tools. We've got it going. Eight tools we've got it going. And that was a very venture capitalist-esque uh, introduction to neuroscience and persuasion. So I love that. Love, love some of those terminologies you dropped in there. I like from White Combinator. Thanks very oh, much yeah. uh, for coming. <laughs> he's, he's coming for you, Naval, very, very slowly, but on his way. Uh, before we forget, if you are listening and you are loving the show, you're enjoying us, go follow, give us a quick follow on Instagram or LinkedIn. We also post uh, more updates there too. But getting back to the practical side of things and this episode in particular where we're going to give you eight brain tools uh, for influence and for motivation, the first one as we kick things off here is to connect 
and build trust and safety before trying to persuade or influence or motivate. Oh, you've mentioned the word trust. I like this. Brain to number one, connect. Trust, Talk to me. Trust, connect. Brain to number one's connect. So basically, before we can be influenced by a message, we have to trust its source. Otherwise, your brain goes through this process of what's called thoughtful elaboration, aka skepticism. You start picking holes in the points, doubting claims, uttering scrutiny. Um, there's a there's a great quote I like by uh, a neuroscience obsessed salesperson, Jeff Bloomfield, saying, we're all in this self-preservation orientation where we're all about protecting ourselves and our brains are oriented towards protection of ourselves. And so if you don't trust a message source, uh, what ends up happening is you're trying to protect yourself by picking holes in where it is. And to give you a bit of an analogy, Kieran, if I may, do you do you believe all the overly hyped marketing online claiming you know pigs can fly or this product will save your life or the salesperson telling you that their product service is a hundred times better than anything else? Most of the time, no, you don't. And that's because you don't trust the message source. It's actually such a good point because we people always sell you on the dream, right? It's this future oh, yeah. end state of you'll be 10x this, 100x this in terms of whether it's your beauty, your attractiveness, your life and value. And so that I think is a really interesting point. I think on this one, which is connect what? What research backs this up? Because I know you're a research man. I'm a research man. And it's also good to to validate our point with a bit of credibility and authority, which we're going to touch on later. Ooh, leveraging. Uh, leveraging. I like leveraging. Yeah, leveraging. Already. So there's <laughs> some research that came out by Prester and Petty in 1995 that shown information presented by untrustworthy endorsers is more likely to be thoughtfully elaborated, which means skepticized, whereas information presented by trustworthy endorsers is likely to be unthinkingly accepted. Uh, and if you were to do an fMRI study, you can actually see uh, in some of the subsequent research that the brain area is associated with uh, message perception and confidence in message processing, uh, much more active when it comes from a source we perceive to be trustworthy. So that's a lot of brain babble, so to speak. I'd be wondering myself, how do I actually imply this? Well, there's a really, really simple implementation of this. And that's before you try to influence anyone else, before you try to persuade in your presentation or in your sales calls or just day to day, tell a vulnerable personal story that connects you with your audience because you build trust by trusting first. So this helps you build some emotional credibility. Uh, an example I'll give you is if you notice the start of 90% of the best TED Talks, they open up with these really personal, intense stories about why you should listen and believe them. And this creates this like trust and connection between you and the audience. And you might be thinking, how does that actually apply when it comes to everyday day, day life and, and just trying to get my, uh, my friends to go to the movies with you? Well, you can start by just admitting something. Hey, I actually don't really know if this movie is going to be amazing, but I'm really, really excited to go see it. Or, you know, I'm a little bit unsure about this, but here's what I think. And by having that little voluntary disclosure, that admission, you're building that connection and trust beforehand. Um, and from a marketing perspective, you can also apply this with things like trust seals. So across your marketing materials, you know, anything that presents credibility in terms of badges, awards, number of people you've helped, impacted customers, et cetera, um, helps build that trust up. So that's brain tool number one. You got to connect and build trust first before any persuasion. I love it. And I think that that whole idea of telling a vulnerable story, and you're so right, every TED Talk has oh, a personal story one. in it. But you're hooked, right? It's yeah. the hook. 
And yeah. I think that leverages narrative bias really, really well, which is like we're going to be mm. more influenced and remember stories as opposed to, you know, a series of 10 facts about why you've got to connect and trust and so on and so forth. So, mate, I really, really like that one. Tell a vulnerable story, make that concession so that, yeah, people yeah. actually see you to be a human being. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Concession's a great word for it. Like It's just putting your trust in someone else first so that, that therefore they are able to trust you in return. You know, building a bit of fam- familiarity, so to speak. I love it. And that beelines perfectly into brain tool number two, which is aim to be familiar. So, Sam, can I ask, have you have you ever been lost in a country where your first language isn't the native language? Uh, a million times before, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. How come? And, and can I ask, what did you feel when that happened? Oh, totally overwhelmed, quite anxious, scared, um, and really, really uncertain, on edge. You're definitely walking around on edge. Absolutely. And like this happened to me when I was in Barcelona, when I was 19 years old. I remember so, so distinctly, um, I was you know out and about just walking yep. through La Rambla, through the streets, seeing all this amazing stuff going on. Lost my friends. I had no idea where, where I was living. I had literally, no, my phone was out of battery. I was scared. I was feeling all that visceral emotion. And I remember just trying to find people like no one could speak English to me. Right? And I'm in Spain where English is obviously taught you know, reasonably well. And I then just stumbled upon this Peruvian guy and he literally said, are you okay in English? And I like, I remember the reaction. I felt so at ease. I felt so safe. I felt so secure. I just started telling you my life story. And he ended up helping me get to uh, where I needed to go, which was obviously phenomenal, good Samaritan all the way. But I felt elated and happy because they were familiar. And familiar generally means similar. It's comfortable and it's known. And this is why brain tool number two is aimed to be familiar. It's known as the liking principle. Right, those people that we like, we're more likely to be influenced by, which I think makes sense. Oh, makes makes perfect sense. You know, we we trust the people we like that we feel are similar to us. And what is so fascinating, and I'm going to take you way back, is this is obviously inspired by Robert Cialdini's book Influence. For those that haven't read it, feel free to deep dive. Very very good book indeed. But um, Mm. Tupperware parties, mate, back in the 1940s. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you back. I don't again. I don't haven't been to a Tupperware party. Have you? Never, not once. My mum has though, multiple times. Ah, very interesting. Well, we've got to, got to tap on that. And basically what happened is these guests basically would happen um, where the host would receive a commission for all the containers that were sold. And initially what was happening from these Tupperware companies is they'd actually only sell it via retail outlets. And lo and behold, didn't do very well. Sales were down. But by 1951, Tupperware products were no longer offered in the retail space. They were generated from Tupperware parties. And people bought the containers, not because they needed them, not because they wanted them, but because they liked the host. They associated the host with the Tupperware and therefore they were more likely to buy, which I thought was an absolute fascinating uh, sort of case of behavioral studies. Oh, totally. And you can you can almost see the same effect these days with the uh, the multi-level marketing schemes um, Very that, that use, uh, if anyone's been under their influence that use the, the influence of familiar people. So the real question is though, obviously this is quite a, a powerful, um, persuasion principle when it comes to the brain and our psychology. How do you actually put this in action? How do you use Basically it? you hold a Tupperware party. I'm yeah. kidding, I'm kidding. We all have Tupperware parties. <laughs> yeah. Tupperware parties all around for sure. Well, I'll probably separate in terms of applying this to our lives into two sections. So if I take, mm. you know, personal social business, right? Say you're meeting someone new. Now, I'm not saying stalk them, but yeah. we've got social media, right? Look up their socials and see if you have any interest in common. And if you can make that the talking point subtly, they're going to be more likely to associate you with someone that they will like because you're familiar and similar. So, for example, the other day I was meeting with uh, a teacher, 
right? And I saw that that particular teacher was really into neuroscience. So shock, I brought up neuroscience really early with them, asking a question, hey, you know, saying I've got a podcast called Brain Tools Shock Plug. And when we ended up talking about um, neuroscience for like literally 30 minutes of meeting. And so that was a really important point to build rapport as well. But I think a really simple way of doing it to create liking is, is smile. Like obviously don't give a crazy, creepy mm. smile, but smiling is the ultimate heuristic for warmth, for trust, and for happiness. And you can tell that through the way that call center people are normally trained. If you speak like this when I'm speaking blah, 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 you've got a certain tone. The moment I smile and say, hey, Sam, how's it going? Everything changes about the way that I'm communicating the message. So the long and short, Sam, is if someone likes you, they're more likely to trust you. And if they trust you, they're more likely to believe you and be influenced. Hence, my brain tool number two is aim to be familiar. Great. It's such a great brain tool. It actually also uh, infringes on some some really good psychology work uh, on the warmth versus competence model. If you've heard of that. I've never heard of this. What's this? Effectively, it's the, the way we evaluate people in the first couple of minutes uh, is on this scale of wor- warmth versus confidence, competence. And basically, we assess how warm they are towards us, how trustworthy they are, how familiar they are first. And then after that, judgment is made. Then we look at how competent they are, how how well, we believe they're able to execute on their intentions. But uh, in a lot of the research, the impetus is on being warm before competence because mm. otherwise you're perceived as untrustworthy, which ties into that brain tool number one and brain tool number two. That is so good. I love it, Sam. There we'll we make, go. We've got brain tool number three next. Warmth versus confidence. Uh, yeah, brain tool number three, which is evoke emotion. So what you might not know is that decision-making can't happen without emoking. Emotion. So influence can't happen without emotion. In fact, cognitive neuroscientist Dr. Tali Shara says the amygdala is the ticket to persuasion. And the amygdala is where a lot of our emotional processing, emotional salience occurs. And there's even an algorithm from Spark Neuro, a company backed by Will Smith himself, who analyzed all these movies. Uh, don't think iRobot was on that list, but they analyzed all these movies and found an algorithm for persuasion. And at the heart of that algorithm, you guessed it, was emotion. So we know emotion activates the amygdala, it alerts the brain and the body, uh, and it, it is pivotal to decision-making. So much so that it can actually make us do some some really silly things. And Kieran, I want to ask you, have you ever bought something impulsively? Have you ever bought something just and made a really rash purchase? Mate, I can, I'll take you back one week. And I was walking through <laughs> a mall um, with my girlfriend and I saw a golf shop and I was like, Ding, 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 ding. I'm going in. Spent yeah. about an hour there and bought literally everything. It was the nice. biggest impulse buy I've made in a long time. So I can totally, totally relate. And and it happens to all of us, you know, whether that's a, an Instagram ad we see for something that we get excited about or someone tells us about a new product that we just, we get so excited with anticipation we want to buy it um, because it triggers this emotional reaction in us. And the reason is, as we talked about in our last episode on protecting your brain as a consumer, 95% of our decision-making is subcortical as estimated by some of the Harvard researchers in psychology and neuroscience. And there's some great work from Antonio Damasio, who is a neurobiologist. And he found that when people's decision-making was impacted when they lost the part of their brain associated with emotional processing. So when there was damage to it, they were no longer able to make really simple decisions. Like, what do you want to have for lunch today? Um, Where do you want to go? They couldn't process that, even though the logical parts of their brain were processing just fine. So the question is, how do you actually implement this? How do you evoke emotion? And the answer is really, really simple. You just tell an emotional story. 
And the reason stories are so powerful as emotional tools, just ask Aristotle, as he put in uh, his uh, rhetoric course a couple thousand years ago, the reason stories are so powerful is because they create neural coupling and they actually synchronize the brains so you can share an emotional journey. And what I mean by this is there's some really great work done by Yuri Hassan at Princeton, uh, Lauren Nemenma uh, in Finland, where they show when we tell a story to someone else, their brain begins to synchronize and look exactly the same as us. If I tell you about my journey overseas in the time I fell down and broke my leg in, in Canada while I was in Whistler snowboarding, instinctively, you won't even realize this, but the parts of your brain associated with movement, your motor cortex, as I describe it, will start to activate. Your emotional processing will start to activate. And if you cut open both of our heads at that moment in time, when we're synchronized by a story, our brains would look identical. And they've done this in movies. They've had dozens of people sit in a movie and they've put on EEG headsets and they've watched a movie and the brain patterns, the neural activity patterns looked identical. Plus, we also know from some of the research that speaker-listener neural coupling, when people are in sync, is shown to underlie a lot of successful communication. And that was from the work of Lauren Nemenma. Uh, to quote Carmen Gallo, when it comes to stories, if you're not sharing stories in business presentation, pitches, in your marketing copy, sales call, or even conversations when you're just trying to influence a friend to do something, if you're not sharing a story, you're missing the single best communication tool you have in the influence toolbox. So that's brain tool number three, evoke emotion, use a story. That is so good, mate. I love that. And I, as you said, that whole idea of when we share stories with people and how it evokes the same neural pathways in those mm. uh, in those participants, I think is awesome. But it just links so nicely with narrative bias, right? Absolutely. Like if you are, people are more likely to remember those stories. They're more likely to remember the emotion they have actually felt at that time. And I think that's a really salient point that you make, which is like when you are creating this story, start off with the question, what do I want to make this person feel? Like, what's the emotion? And then all that flows from there is going to be really interesting. I, I find that a fascinating one, mate. Absolutely. And from a, a little bit of a marketing insider perspective, the, the way you can think about this when you're trying to promote yourself is what kind of emotional journey are you trying to take people on? How are you trying to make them feel at different stages along that journey? What kind of emotional roller coaster are they coming on to get to that end point of influence? And it actually makes it a lot easier to you know, write your, your promotion and your copy based on that. So a little bit of a marketing secret there. Oh, the guru. The guru shares his words of wisdom. You quote Aristotle. I'm just going to quote Sam Holston. <laughs> <laughs> That's cheeky. <laughs> very, very nice. Well, uh, the last brain tool to wrap up before we have a little break is brain tool number four, which yep. is be an authority. So, Sam, when you normally go to the doctor, and again, hopefully not too often, right, but when you go to the doctor, what mm. do you normally see? So it's it's usually always see their medical certificate, um, possibly their PhD, any awards that they've won, things like that, right? Absolutely. And like you see all these different things. And when you see that, you're not going to say, oh, this person doesn't know what they're doing. You li mm -hmm. literally look at that be like you associate all the names and all the credibility that they have with that. And that is the whole idea of experts and expertise. Think of the relationship between a uniform and a profession, right? Police, police person, fire person, doctor all these different things, you associate a uniform so, so clearly with their credibility and expertise within that area. And what I find fascinating about this, Sam, is that this is defined as the authority principle, that we are more likely to mm. comply with people in those positions of authority. And it's a judgment heuristic, and shout out to our episode on biases, where the people that who are in these positions of authority may yield greater wisdom and power, again, linking quite nicely to the halo effect in that episode. So, Sam, I want to share with you a very quick experiment, if I can. 
Please, you know how much I love a study. I feel like you're going to like this one, and I feel like you already know it, so I'm going to tell you it anyway. It's the Stanley Milgram experiment. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it, yeah, I have heard of it. I like it. Well, 1963 in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology. You've got to love the word abnormal <laughs> in the 60s. But I want you to picture this if you can, which is mm. I want you to imagine you're a participant. Right? You're a participant and you're sitting in a chair and you're about to have a series of memory tests, right? Normally nonsense words that you've got to memorize. And there was another person that you were like, basically it was that was being performed on this and they were an actor or an actress. So you're observing them do the memory test and the participant was told to administer a series of electric shocks if the answer was wrong. So you've got this random mm. person you don't know and you're just observing this as a participant and you're like told literally to turn the voltages up. And so as the voltage increased, the person who was the actor or actress was shouting in pain. They were crying. They were screaming, really putting it on. And if at any time the participants wanted to stop the experiment, the researcher in the room wearing the lab coat, looking with a very, very stern face, would literally be prompted, hey, you've got to continue. Turn the voltage up. Keep it going higher, 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 and higher. And so you can imagine that if you're the participant here, Sam, that you've got a conflict of here's this person in agony and here's this person telling me to do it. What do I do? And unfortunately, 65% of the participants ended up proceeding to the highest level of shocks. They yielded to the person in the lab coat. They yielded to the authority. And that led to what I would call a suboptimal outcome, especially in terms of the moral landscape. That is absolutely crazy. And you can think about it in your own in your own life too, right? I'm just thinking about now the amount of times you go to a, a sports match or you're out in public and a police officer or a security guard says, you, over there, get over that way. And you just do it instinctively. You don't even think about it. Absolutely. And there's so many experiments of, you know, people asking for donations to certain things with the right uniform and so on. And so mm. in, in implementing this, uh, if I can, yes. there are a few different ways. I think from a personal perspective in your personal life, and you're doing a personal brand or, or you know, leveraging that, leverage your credentials and your qualifications, yep. right? Now, I know that might seem like you're name dropping, but subconsciously that's going to have a massive impact on whether a person actually comes to the party and says, hey, I agree with you. I think you're an expert. But from a, a business standpoint as well, I think it's really important that people don't always agree or concede with the other person, which is mm. it's very easy to become a yes person in any uh, meeting where you're trying to influence somebody. But if you can actually educate them, that's the big thing. Prove your expertise to the person, share with them the research, share with them your knowledge of the industry. And I think that's the big ticket item, which is if you can teach something to someone that is new and novel, you've provided value to them. And if you provided that value, you are more likely to actually influence them because you're seen as an expert. So that is brain tool number four, which is be an authority. I like that a lot. And I like that last frame of demonstrating expertise as opposed to relying on credibility factors. Bang. I love it. Well, let's take a quick break and let's come back with brain tool number five. All right, and welcome back to the second section. We're going to get another four brain tools doubling up this week. That is eight brain tools total. What a value-packed episode <laughs> and a terrible introduction. Speaking of introductions and starting out is brain tool number five, and that is common ground slash prior beliefs. Common ground, prior beliefs. Mm, talk to me. This brain tool is all about being mindful of the way you begin by trying not to prove others wrong or inserting a new belief and a whole new way of thinking, but starting by finding some common ground. 
And the reason this is so important from a perspective of trying to influence someone, maybe you're trying to convince um, a sibling to to do something, or maybe you're trying to get your point across uh, to a friendship group about something you feel really, really strongly about. Maybe you're trying to convince someone to to go on a holiday somewhere that they they would rather go somewhere else. Whatever it is, we're always going to be running into confirmation bias, or as I like to call it, belief defense. It's that instant defense mode we have when our beliefs come under attack. And to use some psychology terms, uh, there's a lot of research around this to which references what's called reactance or the backfire effect. And effectively, when you push on people's beliefs really, really hard, there is a reactance from them where they push back and they enter this defense mode. And we've touched on this in prior episodes when we talked about arguing. Uh, and how if you attack people's beliefs, they perceive this as an attack on their ideological body, which we then put us into defense mode. We start defending ourselves. But let me let me ask everyone listening right now to do an exercise with me to kind of demonstrate this point. Oh, I'm so ready. Okay, right, go. Put, put your hands together in front of you like you were praying or doing a meditation. So now you've got your hands together. Now I want you to push against your hands from both sides. Keep pushing. Keep it's like pushing. Tutorial exercise. Ah. Where are they going? They're not budging, right? Because both hands are pushing against each other. Now, stop. This time, I want you to push with one hand and pull with the other. What happens? Well, that hand that you pulled pulled the hand that was pushing in that direction. And this is the difference between trying to prove someone they're wrong, which is going against and pushing your hands, versus using common ground and moving with their force and pulling them along with you. So that's my my little analogy. Did you give that I, a shot? I, I, I had so much fun, man. I'm putting my hand up. I really like that, Sam. I really like it. <laughs> and basically the idea is that because uh, our brains are so preoccupied with conserving our um, current beliefs, which is called confirmation bias, and there's a lot of research around that, anytime you're fighting against what is already existing belief-wise in someone's brain and pushing against that and not acting from a position of common ground, you're going to encounter this belief defense, which is going to make it really hard to influence them. So there's actually a study they they did with 811 anti-vaxxer parents that found by highlighting factual information about dangers and deadly diseases, they were actually much more able to influence the decision than undercutting the vaccination myths in terms of changing their behavior. And that's because counteracting their beliefs Trigger them into this belief defense um, mechanism. So how do you how do you use this? How do you use common ground and prior beliefs? Well, like I said with, at the beginning, you want to begin and start with a common belief. We both believe this, and work from there. If you're in marketing, you can find the the beliefs your audience has and lead into them, especially the ones you have in common. Example, you know, marketing to marketers. Your belief might be that most marketers are underappreciated, overlooked, because you know that's something that's shared with your audience. Whatever it is, when you're trying to influence people, it's best to start with common ground and to start with beliefs that you already share as opposed to trying to bash their beliefs and putting them into defense mode. And that's brain tool number five. Start with common ground. Be aware of prior beliefs. It's such a good one as well from influence because this is almost, this is making me think of episode 18, you know, disagreements or the neuroscience mm. of disagreements where, you know, we talked about that idea of finding that common ground. And one of the best ways to do it, as you've articulated, is, is active listening. Like you've got to show the other person that you've actually heard what they're saying and then clarifying it so you can have that meeting of the mind. So getting that mm. common ground makes so much sense in terms of being able to influence people a lot better. Totally. 
Totally. And so that's, yeah, that's brand tool number five. I've noticed when I, when I use this in my own life as well, um, when I'm trying to get my point across or even connect and communicate with people, starting with things you both believe in just makes the conversation so much easier. It's pulling while they're pushing as opposed to pushing back. That was the best exercise we've done on brain tools, by yeah. the way. I love yeah. it. I love it so much. Um, so that links really nicely in terms of we talk about the common ground and prior beliefs, and I suppose it's then about getting commitment from that person mm. once you've actually established that. And that's brain tool number six, which is get consistent commitments. And this is basically, Sam, leveraging um, the principle known as behavioral consistency, which is very clear that people have a tendency to behave in a manner that matches their past decisions or behaviors. They want their identity to be consistent. And I think, like, I was thinking about this, right? Like, from an evolutionary perspective, because, you know, we want to get all Darwinian, it, it does serve us well, especially in a social environment, because unpredictable people are less likely to be liked, right? Mm. I, we value, uh, such a, a value or in our or virtue is honesty, but the opposite of vice is dishonesty. We don't like liars, particularly when it comes to their identity. And I think Robert Cialdini states this really well, which he says, once we have made a choice or taken a stand, we will encounter personal and interpersonal pressures to behave consistently with that commitment. And those pressures will cause us to respond in ways that justify our earlier decision. And I, I think that's so, so true with in our personal life, social lives, everything. Um, so I ask you, have you seen this in your life, Sam? I embarrassingly have. Uh, it happened It happened to a friend of a friend of mine. Actually, it happened to me. It happened to me. <laughs> a friend of a friend of mine. No, it's me. It's me, I swear. Um, so I was attending a market and then sitting down on the Oval, eating my croissant, beautiful day in Brisbane. Ooh. And we had uh, this guy come up to us and didn't know he was a volunteer for a charity at the time. Um, and he just started asking some questions. And the first question was, um, hey, uh, hey, I'm, you know, just asking about a bit of information, doing a bit of research here. Do you value education? What's your opinion on it? And I love education. I think it's really important. Um, so I said, yeah, I value education. The next question he asked was, well, have you ever uh, contributed to a charity before? Have you ever, you know, donated in your life? And I also said, yeah, of course I have. And then his third question was, would you be willing to donate to this education charity? And I instinctively almost immediately on the spot pulled out my card and said yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i guess i will <laughs> so he, he got me into this uh this little corner and i felt com- like committed to act because it was in, in line with what i had just said that's so 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 good because it links so nicely with this study in the 1960s but done by psychologists friedman and fraser and mm-hmm. it was coined the foot in the door study yeah. and basically what they found is that if people agreed to put a small three inch drive carefully sticker in their home window then two weeks later they were more than four times, four times more likely to agree to putting a large sign with the same message on their front lawn, yeah, right? Wow. So it's like it's the scaled up and that the whole idea is agreeing to a small request made them, you know, feel obliged to be consistent with their previous um, sort of pledge, um, obviously two weeks later as well. So I suppose in terms of applying this to your life, there's so many different ways you can go about doing it. And this is a, an absolute hallmark of influence. But I think I wanted to start with the personal, right? Which is mm. trying to get, you know, we talked about habits on episode four of the Brain Tools podcast and the idea of behavioral change. Now, if you want to change your behavior, write and sign a contract with yourself, right? Like actually, if you are like, hey, I want to um, stop drinking or I want to eat well, actually signing at the bottom and the dotted line is actually a really good way or commitment device because we do this in business, we do it in all other aspects of life and then getting a witness to sign that. So whether it's your significant other, that's more likely to yield you to sticking to said behaviors. That's a a first one. But I think from a a business standpoint, Sam, 
we're talking about this idea of micro commitments, right? Micro commitments mm. in the same way that that happens to you with the education charity is either more like more times a person says yes during, let's call it a sales conversation, so to speak, or an influence conversation, the more likely they are going to say yes at the end. So use validating and affirming questions during those conversations. Examples of that are, do you think that would be useful? Do you agree with my statement? If we were to improve your results by X percent, would that be helpful to your organization? And we did this internally um, at Elevate, and we found that if you got three to five um, micro-commitments in any call, it predicted sort of 80 to 90% of the commitment moving forward taking place. And so there's a really interesting correlation between those two things. Um, And so leveraging those micro-commitments, getting them with yourself and with others um, is going to be massive. So brain tool number six, Sam, get consistent commitments. Mm, I like it a lot. It actually um, mimics a principle in copywriting, direct response copywriting, marketing, called harmonizing where you are trying to get those committal yeses uh, and build up to it. I love it. So good. Uh, And leads kind of into brain tool number seven, which is my last brain tool for today. And that is ask, don't tell. Give options and inspire agency. Um, you might be wondering what agency has to do with the brain and persuasion. That's perfectly reasonable. Uh, and the matter of the fact is we are wired for choice. In fact, when we make a choice, our brain, uh, releases a reward, the reward circuitry activates. So we know from some of the research that choosing actually has intrinsic value. We are kind of born to choose. And what that means when it comes to influences, we don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to feel as if we're being coerced into making a decision. We want to be able to choose that for ourselves. And let me ask you this, Kieran, as a teenager, did you ever push back when your parents told you you had to do something? Never. What are you talking about? I was like, I was literally an awesome child. My parents loved it. It was fantastic. Yeah, if you ask them a different story, I always yeah. push <laughs> Always, right? Haircuts. No, huh. I don't want one. No, yep. I don't want to do this. Um, so, yes, I was not the great. Sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. Sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. Oh, <laughs> me too. The same. And as probably any parent or former teenager, aka everyone can attest, we all do it. We all push back. You know, when someone tells you you have to do something or tells you how you should do something, there is this instinctive reacting reaction we have inside us, which says, I don't want to do that because it's someone else taking your agency, your control, your ability to make that choice. But as a counterpoint, to be more influential, you can give people back that control. And there was a really, really great um, tax study they did. I know, sounds horrifically boring, a tax study. Why, why would you want to listen to a tax study? But hear me out, hear me out. Uh, in one of the tax studies they did, they actually went around a, a neighborhood and asked people how they would like to pay their taxes on time, how how could they make it more convenient? And then people responded to the survey, said, this is how I would like to do it. And similar to that consistency and commitment process, after doing so, they actually found that tax completion rates in that particular suburb skyrocketed to over 90% um, on time because people had been given the option, the agency to do so. And a more of a, a personal level and something I found um, really impactful with my former roles in sales and and marketing when I was internal in a company, just giving people the option uh, to make that decision, I found led to much better outcomes in terms of sales and and deals progressing, but also in terms of uh, marketing and all forms of communication. So how do you use this? 
is the next question, next cab off the rank, is by giving options and asking questions whenever you're trying to influence someone. Rather than saying, hey, let's go to the movies next Tuesday at 8.30. You could say, would you rather go to the movies uh, next Tuesday or Wednesday at 8.30? Uh, or how would you like to do this? You know, When would you like to go to the movies? Or in a sales situation, you can always ask, how would you like to progress? What would you like to do next? Um, whatever you do, it's about giving the person you're trying to influence agency to make a decision uh, and to choose for themselves. And actually works really, really well with kids. So that's my brainstorm number seven is ask, don't tell. Give people options by asking questions about what they want to do and putting them in control of making that decision because we know that we're wired for choice and when people make choices, they feel more in control and therefore you're more influential uh, as a person. So good. I, I love that one as well. And that, that whole idea of working, of doing it with kids as well, when you give them mm. the option, they'll get so excited as well. And I think what, what you're mentioning, the moment you make the choice or the person has that choice, the, the downstream consequences there, the emotion they feel, the validation they feel mm. and how that yep. incubates the decision that they've actually made from a neuroscientific standpoint, I think is really, really interesting. We talk about neuromodulators, serotonin, dopamine, et cetera. It's yep. going wild. Oh, absolutely. And then also to talk about... Um, neurohormones cortisol we know that cortisol is it has an inverse relationship with our sense of control and agency so giving people control is reducing their, their stress it's a win-win-win for everyone that's such a such a good point and i say such a such a yes yeah. so <laughs> as we round out today's uh eight brain tools the brain tool number eight which is leverage reciprocity um so sam i think i think this is a safe thing to say but generally generally people feel uneasy when they feel they owe something to someone else, right? Think of it when um, someone pays for you without even giving you uh, a notice of it and, you know, they don't ask and then, you know, multiple favors, you almost feel that there's this social ledger. Have you ever felt that before? Oh, most definitely. You feel indebted. Absolutely. And again, we talk about Bitcoin being the latest ledger, but there is a social ledger and this <laughs> is what we call recipro <laughs> reciprocity. I thought you'd like that one. Sure. And the whole idea from Cialdini here, again, leveraging influence is we are obligated to give back to others and the form of behavior that they have given to us first. So basically people like to return favors. They want to mm -hmm. equal the social ledgers. And so my question for you, Sam, uh, to take us, we're fast forwarding or going backwards, depending. Have you ever received a Christmas card? I have received a couple, most definitely. And what happens when you receive a Christmas card from somebody? Well, generally, you you panic a little bit because you realize you haven't sent them one. 100%. You're like, I'm a bad human being. <laughs> what, what have I done? I didn't even think about this person. But you feel the, the reciprocity. You feel the need to text them or oh, say, yeah. hey, how are you? Or thanks yeah. so much for that for that um, um, particular um, thing that they've done for you. And I think in 1974, a social, sociologist, um, Philip Kunz, sent out 600 Christmas cards to complete strangers. And despite not knowing any of them, he literally knew no one, which is a bit creepy, um, he received over 200 Christmas cards in return. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> so literally, I, I'm a rando. I'm going to be a good Samaritan. Let's send out 600. How many we get back? Let's see what two, out of, two, two out of six. Two out of, That's very, very, very good, right? Wow. And I think, um, you know, we talk about um, Hare Krishna, society members. They will forcefully mm. give you a flower to a passerby before asking for donations, right? Because you feel the need to give back. So I think from an applying to our lives perspective, I think you've just got to ask yourself the question, what can I give to this group or this, this person that will help them, right? So from a personal perspective, pay people compliments. 
right? Mm. Paying them a compliment and saying, hey, you look really good today. Oh, hey, thanks so much. Particularly when it's about behavior and a result, which is I really loved your hard work here that led to this. It's going to lead to, you know, a dopamine serotonin hit, which is really, really important as a reward perspective. Um, But from a business standpoint, give people things without asking for anything in return. Think of free samples. You know, craft your mm. offer. Think about the offer that you're giving, if, whether it's an ebook. Make sure the thing you're giving of value is high quality, that you would open it, that you would go through it. Because again, you don't want to have an ebook that's like two pages and it's like, oh, cool, great. There's a sales thing, call to action at the bottom. Oh, yeah. Provide heaps and heaps and heaps of value. And what will happen as a result is you create this social debt. Um, that means people are more likely to be influenced over, over time. And that's brain tool number eight, leverage, reciprocity. Super strong. And- the crazy thing that I find about reciprocity, knowing about it from Cialdini's work, is even when you know it's in existence, you can't help it. Like if someone does something for me, I immediately feel indebted, regardless that I know that it's just reciprocity kicking in. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And that, that's where like a lot of the work has shown that reciprocity can and often will trump liking, like the liking principle yeah. as well, which I think is, Always. you know, you can create, create a synergistic thing with that. If you're liked and you give stuff, then basically you're just the best human alive. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's that great example from Lincoln where he asked uh, one of his biggest enemies, so to speak, someone from the other cabinet who hated him to do him a favor. And then that enemy then reciprocated by asking him and they they then built a a trusting relationship where he started admiring it just by reciprocity. That's absolutely incredible. Well, Sam, I think uh, we've done the eight brain tools. I think we need to go right back up to the top and just go through each and summarize with brain tool number one, which you've got. Let's do it. Brain tool number one is you need to connect and build trust and show the other person it's safe to believe what you say first. Best way to do this is with a vulnerable story or a concession of some kind, admitting something because trusting uh, leads to being trusted, which leads to your message and your influence being effective. I love it. That leads so nicely into brain tool number two, aim to be familiar. You want to leverage the liking principle here because we like those that are similar to us and similar and fami- similarity and familiarity are inextricably linked. You don't have to host a Tupperware party, I promise, but what you do want to do is you want to actually understand the other person, things that they like, and mm. position yourself as someone that also possibly likes them or shows interest in that. That could be you know, looking up people's socials before you meet with them and finding that common ground or just smile. So you actually uh, have your tone of voice coming all the way through. As we said, if someone likes you, they'll trust you. And so therefore that is brain tool number two, aim to be familiar. And if you are familiar, if you are trusting, the next thing you can do is brain tool number three, which is evoke emotion. It is critical uh, to our decision-making process. We basically can't make decisions without emotion or we don't make them in the absence of emotion. And you can trigger emotion by taking people on a story with an emotional story, which we know synchronizing couple with the brain. So evoke emotion, use stories, brain tool number three. Love it. Links beautifully into brain tool number four, which is be an authority. We trust expertise, right? And we think of them as people with wisdom and power. Now, don't do the Milgram experiment. Please don't electrocute people and just actually make it work. Please do the following. Leverage your credentials, leverage your qualifications, and also make sure that in any conversation you have with another human being, make sure you look to educate. Teach them something new and they will think you're an expert in the space. Brain tool number four, be an authority. So good. And we know it works because it works on us and it works on everyone. And it leans into brain tool number five, which is come from a position of common ground or prior beliefs. As we talked about in our episode on disagreements, when you counteract someone's belief head on, you trigger reactants slash the backfire effect. You trigger a belief defense 
system. So rather than doing that, start with a common belief, start with what you have in common. We both believe X, Y, and Z and work from there. Brain tool number five. Common so belief. good. Brain tool number six, get consistent commitments. As we mm. said, people want to be consistent with what they've said and done previously. And this is what we talk about behavioral consistency. Really easy way to do this though, is to change your own behavior, make a commitment to yourself, sign a personal contract, get a witness there. Alternatively, get micro commitments throughout a conversation. Get people to say yes, two, three, four times across a conversation. Do you think that would be useful? Do you agree with my statement? And in doing so, you create momentum for the desired behavior that you want. And that is the name of the game, which is influence. That is brain tool number six, get consistent commitments. And last brain tool for me, brain tool number seven is once you've got consistent commitments, ask, don't tell, give people options and agency to make that choice because we are wired for choice. It is rewarding and it also reduces our level of stress. So give people options uh, to be more influential. Would you rather X or Y? How would you like to do this? Put them in the driver's seat make them in control, and they're more likely to be influenced by you. So good. And that rounds out with brain tool number eight, leverage reciprocity. Basically, give people stuff. <laughs> and if you, give people st- if you give people stuff, they will feel the social debt or social ledger um, yep. obviously point in your direction and they'll be more likely to be influenced you in subsequent components. Ask yourself this only question you need, what can I give to this people or group? Give it to them and you'll be mm. leveraging reciprocity. And those are the eight brain tools wrapped up nicely with a bow on top. Whew, big episode. Lots to digest, consume, digest and rest. I um, love it. 80-20 for this week. What have you got, Kieran? Yeah, so mine is just plain simple. Influence is answering the question, how can I make this person's life better? Mm. And just doing that. Good right? question. Leveraging the things we've spoken about, the eight brain tools and providing that value because utility is the aim of the game. That is a great Pareto principle 8020. Mine is to share, share beliefs, share stories, share emotions, and you share brains via neural synchronization, which will make you more influential. So good. Sam, well done. Eight brain tools. I'm taught that is jam packed. Right. Yeah, that is a, I'm, that, that is, there's a I'm lot exhausted. There. I'm tired <laughs> right now. <laughs> we're, we're, we've done reciprocity. We're having a nap now. <laughs> yeah. We've given value. And speaking of given value in return for value, if you would like to show us some support. You can follow us and like along on LinkedIn at Brain Tools Podcast or on Instagram at Brain Tools Podcast, or you can jump and uh, subscribe to our new le- newsletter at Braintools at Substack.com or follow us on our personal LinkedIn accounts, Kieran Goy and at Samuel Holston. Is there anything I'm missing? Probably. You're not. If you like it, share it with other people. Yeah, share, share it with others. Epi- share the app you and they what? can listen to our voices and not hate it. You know what would make our, our brains really, really happy? And you don't have to do this, but this is totally up to you. Would be if you take a cheeky little screenshot of you listening to this episode on your phone and just put on your Instagram story, get the word out. Uh, we want to help more people use their brains better and to understand how they work. So but it's up to you. Down. Totally up to you. What an episode. Well, I reckon that's bye for now. Bye for me as well. See you next week.